Hello, my friend. Welcome back to another episode of the podcast. Very, very good to have you here. I've, uh, you know, thought to myself that it's uh, quite a crazy situation to explore. You know, um, anyway, as you might tell from the title. My guest uh, today is talking about some interesting stuff, if you've already read the description. But I'll get to that in a bit, because the reason why it's also important is because maybe when you are listening to this, you're living in a place where the place that you thought you moved to or you live uh, has a certain experience that drew you to it. I don't know where it may be. If you move to America on work or you move to Europe because of university or you move to one part of India from another part of India or you've gone, say, one of those people who moved um, for a, what, what, what was it called? The workcation or the thing where they would mix. Like, like for, for instance, there's this fucking idiot who I saw in Goa when, I mean, but you can apply that to a lot of fucking idiots you see in Goa. But, and I use the word seeing very loosely. The reason... I bring this one person up is because we were sitting at the shack in Goa, which of course a lot of people like to go to Goa for, and the various kinds of shack stuff where you can snort stuff off, snort other stuff of other people, or snort stuff off each other, whatever floats your boat. But uh, this one shack we entered, I think it was in Mandarin up north. I think it was called Dune, if you're familiar with North Goa, which of course a lot of people are split like, oh, I like South Goa, it's still untapped. It reminds me of old Goa. Like they have these people, right? It's like, it's so quiet and I get I get to feel my soul expand and my aura become a part of my soul and get, I get sand in my chakras, those kind of people. Uh, and then you go to the North, like, I like the North, bro, because just the, totally vibe with the North, you know? Like they sound different, they don't sound the same. Like, it's so amazing up North. Like, it's like, I feel like I'm almost like in the North, you know, just like away, one step closer to like, you know, I, get, I go there to do ayahuasca. I mean, yeah, they sound like the same people. Oh, yeah. But they split by the North and the South. Even within... Uh, people who are awakened, you have the not sought devoid. But anyway, so um, where was I? Yeah, so this guy, we're sitting there and we were just having a beer and it was very hot as Goa is in the afternoons. And first of all, this is experience is annoying as fuck because there are these people who are so-called working there, right? Because they did that during COVID. They're like, I just realized that I can pick up my laptop I can just move home, I can get a place to go, I can chill, I can work, and I can chill. But they don't do either, because they annoy the people who are there to chill, and they annoy the people who they work with. Um, I don't know if they annoy the people they work with, but they annoy the people who come on holiday who are just there to chill, because they're on their conference calls, they're not wearing headphones, and they're on these fucking video things, and they're loud, and they blur their background, and there's some other guy who's trying to be creative, come up with a strategy for his startup, putting Pink Floyd comfortably numb, or wish you were here, something to project to the rest of the people in the shack that he is totally so cool that he listens to profound lyrics from Pink Floyd. And I'm sure he's not listening to it because it's being carried away by the wind and it's coming to my table. And of course, the waiter at the, the, the shack owner's place, he's playing his own music. He's playing fucking Honey Sing, as you do in North Goa. And there's a conflict of sound. And then, 
All these people, if you haven't observed, are wearing formal shirts with uh, whatever it may be, formal blouses, or they're wearing whatever formal attire that they have to appear in while attending their call. With surf, with board shorts, motherfucker. How cool are these guys? They're walking around with their smartphones, and none of them have headphones, because what is privacy? What is consideration towards others in the shack? Nothing for these bastards, because, hey, I'm on vacation. Or, I've moved from Bombay. I've moved from Delhi. I'm living in Seolim, bitch-ass boy. I'm cool, because I'm... I've found a hybrid model where I can chill on the beach, I can experience the coast, I can be one with mother nature, at the same time be one with C++, I can be, I can totally run my boutique, <laughs> I'm sorry, they're, they're total dicks. And then, as you might expect, it doesn't get worse, one guy rolls up with his husky, yeah, that's what you do in Goa when it's fucking 36 degrees out there, you bring a dog from Alaska or Siberia, wherever it was originally from, to Okay, it's bad enough bringing it to India. Maybe some parts of India can handle it. Maybe some parts of Kashmir, some some hilly places where it's cold. But bad enough you bring it to Bangalore. Maybe in Bangalore you have an air-conditioned house which you run the whole time. While you run the AC and you're on a call that going, yeah, you know, climate change, we must have more greener initiatives at the office. But worse, one step, you bring it to fucking Goa. Anyway, you have these fools. So the thing, the point I was making earlier was that you expect you go to these places and all these guys sitting over there. And now suddenly, like Bangalore, it's just phew, constant rain. I, I like it. I'm sitting at home. I don't have to deal with the traffic. I don't have to deal with the potholes that are submerged, which you can disappear into. You don't have to walk down sewage-filled uh, footpaths. I don't have to do that. That's why I'm saying it's nice. But it is awful. It is awful for a lot of people. And I don't understand how we can't really experience it. it and I'm not saying education or qualifications but it's just fucking obvious right so if that's the case that's our approach fuck it we'll just deal with it you'll have some people who'll have these conversations like me having these conversations on the podcast going yeah what is climate change about and then you have other people who are just making huskies to fucking thing maybe they'll be the same guy it'll be like oh i want to escape the weather and go out so monsoonish you know like my flip-flops from fucking collective got all like fungus on it so i'm gonna go to like you know not dunes i'm gonna go to the real fucking sand dunes bro in uae because i'm uae is the new goa i'm gonna chill over there in their man-made lakes in the island in the shape of an arab fucking shakes cock and I'm just going to chill there at the head region because that's what I do. That's how I roll. I'm going to attend my con call. I'm going to be the next guy who's the next unicorn and maybe you'll see real unicorns because that's coming to fucking gore you, you little shit. Or maybe he has a pet unicorn that he's got from some planet. Who knows? I'm just saying things that we uh, expected from a place and we went to experience that place for what it had to offer is all changing. And that leads me very nicely, as I've gotten very good at, into my guest and who he is and what he does. It's Mr. Brian Toon. It's almost like I thought he's going to walk into the room. Uh, Brian Toon is quite a fascinating man with quite a fascinating career. 25 years at NASA. Now he's a professor uh, of atmospheric and oceanic sciences. Uh, in the conversation today, we talk about and I made a bit of a mistake up top, guys. I thought he was Colorado State, but he's University of Colorado. It's apparently a big thing. But anyway, so he, uh, and that's how you know the conversation, the intro is recorded a little later. So he, we talk about how, uh, you know, back in the 80s, he was an, he's quite pretty cool. He was an advisor to, uh, on a panel, of course. I don't I don't I think um, he worked with. Carl Sagan, that's who he worked with. I was going to say Carl Jung. No, he worked with Carl Sagan. You might be familiar with that gentleman's work. He was on my show last week. No. And um, basically helped 
heads of state like I think Ronald Reagan and Gorbachev, Mikhail, you know, my friend Mikhail, with advice about non-proliferation, about the threat, the real threat of nuclear weapons and nuclear resulting nuclear winter, about how these arsenals are pretty much lethal for humanity. So he worked in that capacity. Now he, of course, uh, we talk about his uh, understanding and how carbon emissions have the real impact, not just some 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 person saying, oh, carbon emissions and footprint, none of that. He talked about what carbon actually does, how long it stays in our atmosphere, how long it stays in our oceans. He talked about some of the work he did early on with the ozone layer. Pretty much fucking fascinating, dude. Like at points I was like, I don't think I know enough to talk to this person. But he was really, really forthcoming. He was really patient, really, really informative. And as you can hear, it's my baby crying. So I might have to go now. And all in all, really, really knowledgeable person. And he gives us a lot of information about the future, about what we can expect, about what's going on with the wars and what realistically can happen if some country like, say, for instance, in India and Pakistan go into a nuclear war. A lot of scenarios painted. A lot of them could come to fruition. Let's not. Let's hope not. But before any of that happens, you must listen to him because he's a man who spent 50 years in this field and he knows a lot. So let's listen to someone who knows a lot as opposed to some so-called expert on some so-called news show, just fucking talking head, yelling because that's the only way he or she expresses their information. So thank you as always for tuning into this podcast. I appreciate you. I appreciate um, the effort you make and enjoy this conversation with Brian Toon. Till next time, goodbye, God bless. Take care of yourselves. Catch you on the other side. Cheers. Mr. Brian Toon, welcome to the Soapy Rao Show. Thank you so much for joining me. You're welcome. I'm looking forward to the talk. Um, you know, it's 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 a very interesting topic that you have been um, focusing on for many years, and um, I want to get into that. But I want to also understand. So you're you're, you're a professor at the Colorado State University, and you. Pick this University topic. of Colorado. Oh, sorry, University of Colorado. I'm sorry. Yeah. And, we're we're uh, rivals with Colorado State. Shouldn't have said that. <laughs> My apologies. <laughs> so it's a very interesting thing, the university system in America, right? Because especially when it comes to sports like football, you have these leagues, you have the Big Ten, you have the Pac-10, and mm -hmm. it's, it's almost like it's its own culture, right? The subculture of the university rivalry, the university um, the right. funding and all these things. So um, how has it shaped up over the years where now you hear so many conversations about campus, conversations about woke culture, cancel culture. The, uh, I mean, for you being a witness on campus, how is university, um, I wouldn't say politics, but the university sort of um, reflecting society? Yes, well, I, I worked for about 25 years for the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, mm -hmm. which is a government research lab, obviously. It yeah. explores the planets, but also does work on environmental science in the earth. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I moved to the University of Colorado. Um, so I've also been here for about 25 years, which tells you something about how old I am. <laughs> um, you know, and university culture is very different than the culture in uh, research labs. Mm. Uh, you know, in the research labs, you kind of have one job, you do your research, you build groups that do complicated research problems. And um, you work with big facilities like uh, satellite projects and uh, aircraft. 
And in the university, it's kind of a, more of an individualistic thing. People have little research groups with students who work for them, and uh, they tend to not interact very much with other faculty. They might interact a little bit. And uh, so it's a much more uh, small thing. Um, but you can do large things in the university by interacting um, with government labs and other things. I, I do a lot of work with uh, NASA still. And as, as we're speaking, I'm involved in a field mission in South Korea that involves a NASA airplane, a high-altitude aircraft, and an uh, aircraft from the National Science Foundation, um, which is more of a business jet. And they're trying to explore how the monsoons over Asia uh, transport material upward into the lower atmosphere and the stratosphere, and then it gets carried out over the Pacific Ocean. And mm. um, so we're we're looking at what comes out when you are uh, over Japan, for example. What what's there that has advected away from uh, the Asian monsoon, basically, which mm. extends from Iran all the way um, across to the Pacific. So it's a major feature in the Earth's atmosphere. So anyway, then you know, I have students who are involved in these projects, and uh, they they work. At, I have one student, for example, who's working at a NASA center now, and other students are working at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, which is also in Boulder. Um, and you know, so the students, I try to get my students involved in larger research problems than just my own interests. No, it's 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 amazing that um, these things which we're studying as human beings, right? When it comes, you said you mentioned you worked at NASA and now, of course, a lot in the news, you hear about SpaceX and you hear about these these missions to various planetary systems. And now with the James Webb out there, you have these mm -hmm. different images coming to our notice and um, the, the information that we have access to is increasing. But you've, of course, done some amazing work as, um, you know, part of panels. You've, you've, as you said, gone back 25 years in NASA and you, you've really helped formulate a lot of policy when it comes to certain things um, that nations have experienced. But these two things that you focus mainly on at the atmosphere and oceans, which are the two fundamental elements, if you if you look at it with things in the conversation we're experiencing, which have changed, right? And, and when you talk about climate change, mm -hmm. you talk about these shifts that we're experiencing. And I'm sitting in Bangalore right now, we're experiencing the monsoon, which is crazy. Um, when it comes to certain patterns that a lot of people are like, we didn't have this 20 years back, right? Um, so, so what is something that did you ever think that when you chose this path to study and, and, and spend a lot of your life understanding, uh, it would be it would shape up such in such a large impact on humanity? No, when I was uh, young, um, everybody watched um, television shows from a guy named Mr. Wizard, mm -hmm. you know, who, uh, explored little interesting science things. And there was science fiction theater, which those little science fiction stories about the future of science. And mm -hmm. of course the Russians launched uh, the first cosmonaut into space and there was a big space race. And so when I was young, I would just um, had interest in, in, in lots of interesting little problems, you know, many of which were solved after not too long. Um, you know, for example, I, when I was young, it was a big controversy about whether there were Yetis, um, you know, which are supposed to be yeah. giant kind of people like things wandering around in the Himalayas. Yeah, yeah. And it uh, didn't take too long to solve this problem. You know, people went up and talked to a bunch of monks who told them a bunch of fairy tales. And it you know, finally just discovered that they were making up 
skeletons of yetis and things like that from baboon skins or something. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Know, so we now know we know that there are no such things as yetis. But it's greatly disappointing to me that if you watch modern television, um, you'll see big stories about Bigfoot and other things like that. I remember a story on a science channel, which calls itself a science channel, mm. about uh, giant <laughs> black cats. You know, of course, there are black jaguars in the world, you know, and they were yeah. claiming, you know, there are black cats wandering around in the United States, and they might be dangerous. And so they had, you know, all kinds of people talking about this. And then they finally brought a photographer out who said, well, yeah, this, I understand this picture right here of this cat. It's just a house cat, you know, and it's a small little animal. It just looks big because of the way they took the picture here. See, here's a, another version of it. It's a cat. You would oh, think God. that would have ended the problem. Yeah. But no. They continued the show, dropped the fact that this guy had shown it was a house cat, and continued on as if it were a mystery. You know, oh, to God. me, this is this is really bad. This is not the way that science could be should be communicated. You know, there are facts. You can solve these problems. Um, you know, and and you shouldn't just make things up because they're more exciting. Mm. I mean, it is true that's entertaining. People like to hear about these things. And um, but you know, I, so I'm worried about the way we're misusing these kinds of things to educate children. But at any rate, when I was young, there were all kinds of things I wanted to know about. You know, what's it like on Mars? What killed the dinosaurs? Mm. Um, what made ice ages? And, uh, you know, I read about all these things when I was a kid, and I thought, well, I, you know, I want to know the answers to all these things. And, and um, so I kept trying to find some way to figure out the answers to all of them. And, uh, you know, I have been able to, in my career, look at what was on Mars and what's it like there? And we found ancient riverbeds and we're all trying to understand how Mars would ever be that warm. And uh, I was able to look into the extinction of the dinosaurs, which I, we know now was caused by an asteroid collision. And, you know, we're still debating about exactly what happened, but nevertheless, I think we know what happened. Uh, and um, so, you know, so in the ice ages, I think we have a good idea about what caused them in a general way. So we, we've answered a lot of problems, but it's a little discouraging looking back on this. So I'm still working on many of the same problems. You know, in the mm -hmm. 1970, I was working on Martian rivers and how to explain them. I'm still working in Martian rivers. So some of these problems are, it's what? really hard to make sure you know what happened. And and why is that? Like, because, you know, sometimes you know, I'm not a scientist and I don't want to pretend that I understand what goes on in the science world or with mm -hmm. academics, but it almost feels like, uh, with what you just said with uh, shows on, say, you know, certain scientific mm -hmm. so-called, as you mentioned, <laughs> channels, it's, it's almost like you're playing it up when in a, in a time when we have access to so much more information, it almost feels like we're dumbing it down to bring up the drama. Is do, do, Why do you sense that that happens? Like, is it to sort of confuse people? Is it to, is it to get more ratings and reviews or uh, or is that sort of a trend across different disciplines i think it's just trying to make something entertaining and interesting to people and if you solve the problem you're afraid they'll lose interest like how many stories can you have about bigfoot and yetis if you say oh, well we know we know that they, they don't exist um, mm. you know then that you lose a whole topic to talk about but wouldn't but, that know, create more inquiry about new things like um sorry for interrupting but like the reason you mentioned you mentioned yeti and bigfoot mm -hmm. but say we solve 
the Loch Ness Monster, Yeti, Bigfoot, whatever it may be, right? But now, like I read the other day that they're finding these massive new shark, I mean, existing sharks like the great whites growing up to 20 feet uh, in these mm-hmm. no fishing zones because, you know, obviously there's no human contention. So these are new new things that are evolving. Or also, for instance, like uh, you have these um, new footage coming out from NASA about these uh, what's it called? The 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 space unidentified uh, oh, objects UFOs, in the sky. Uh-huh. Yeah, so right. it's it's almost like there is a lot more to explore and be curious about, but we're still harping on the same issues and kind of being very narrow minded about our view, right? Yeah, there are so many interesting things out there that it's not like we're going to run out of mysteries and things that are <laughs> yeah. that are worth studying and understanding. And, and just to give you an example, I spent at least 10 years of my life working on the ozone hole problem. Mm-hmm. And uh, so in the 1980s, um, a group of scientists on the, uh, from the British Antarctic Survey, sitting they were sitting on Antarctic all by themselves, and they're measuring ozone overhead. And they said, oh, there's a huge ozone loss going on down here. Mm-hmm. And they like, called up NASA and said, there's a huge ozone loss going on here. And NASA said, no, there's not. You know, we have satellite there. Nothing's happening. And they said, yeah, something's happening. And NASA said, no, there's not. This went on for a while. Mm. And finally, the British guy said, well, I'm going to publish a paper about the ozone hole. Um, and so they did. And uh, NASA went back and uh, looked at the satellite data they had. And they discovered that, you know, it's dark there, of course, in the, in the night and winter there. And when the sun first comes up, the satellite had to, sunlight to have needed sunlight to make the measurement of the ozone. Mm. And so if, if they got a weird ozone measurement, a programmer wrote a line in there that said, well, if the ozone's really low, I just throw the data out. It must not be any good. So they threw the ozone hole out. And, uh, oh, my God. You know, okay. Yeah, that was very embarrassing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so then they discovered uh, that they'd thrown it out, and so they uh, kept measuring again, and they still threw it out again because the programmer, instead of taking the line out, just – raise the threshold and the ozone hole was getting deeper and deeper. Yeah. Um, so uh, this, this was a huge controversy in science and in politics, what was causing the ozone hole. And we're fortunate that this was something that occurred just over Antarctica because there's not that much light there and nobody lives there. Mm. Um, and you know, losing ozone is very dangerous because it can let ultraviolet radiation get to the surface, which causes sunburns and cataracts and cancers and mm. things like that. Anyway, after uh, this was firmly discovered, NASA and the United States and NOAA and the United States, as well as the British um, and other countries, uh, said, we have to go study this and figure out what it is. Mm. And uh, this, this was the most satisfying science problem I was ever involved in um, for the simple reason that we, there was actually a little contest before people started making measurements. You know, what could be causing this? And so one theory was um, air was coming down from above Mm. and it was full of nitrogen oxides that were created by sunlight Mm -hmm. and the nitrogen oxides were eating up the ozone. Right. And then the second theory was that, no, the air was coming up from below. Mm. There's very little ozone in the lower atmosphere. And so if air was coming upward into over Antarctic all of a sudden, then the ozone would go away because it, uh, air with the ozone would be replaced by air without ozone. And then so it's uh, being pushed theory, out by this, replaced by this air from underneath. Yeah, just be replaced. And then the third theory was, uh, well, no, it's because of chlorine. Mm. And so in uh, earlier, uh, about uh, 10 years before the ozone was discovered, Sherry Rowland and Mario Molina had discovered that chlorofluorocarbons mm. 
could destroy the ozone layer. And they predicted that in about 30 years from now, yeah. not even yet, about 30 years from now, mm -hmm. that ozone would start to be destroyed at about 30 kilometers above the surface um, by chlorine compounds. Mm. And, uh, you know, they are very excited and worried about this because that's 30 years from today. Yeah. Okay. In the future, not right. in the past, in the future. Right. right. <laughs> and, uh, and so they were very worried about this. And because chlorofluorocarbons are incredibly valuable compounds, they are used in um, um, air conditioning as a working fluid to make it cold and refrigeration. And they were used in the foam that insulates things. And they were used in all kinds of industrial processes. Mm -hmm. So they're very safe chemicals mm -hmm. uh, and um, they are very easy to manipulate and use for different things. Uh, so that's why they were very widely used. At, at any rate, most of the world didn't believe these guys, but the United States banned the use of uh, these materials in spray cans. Mm -hmm. you know, so like, you know, putting hairspray on if women used to put on hairspray on their hair or yeah. uh, deodorant or something like that. And they replaced it with things like butane, mm -hmm. uh, which is very flammable. Right. So I don't know if they do this in India, but in the United States, they have these little spray cans or put out little streamers of rubber. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can spray these at a birthday cake with flames on it, with candles, and it'll make flames, right. which is right. incredibly dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's almost like converting a kid's body into a flamethrower. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly, right. And um, so anyway, that was 10 years before the ozone hole was discovered. Mm -hmm. And when the ozone hole was discovered, the, the idea was, well, maybe there's something about the chlorine that's doing this instead of in 1980 and not in um, 2050. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was the third theory. And right. So we flew some airplanes down there and um, we got there in, um, in um, August and uh, there was nothing happening and nothing happening. And. There are a bunch of dynamics people, you know, calculate winds. And they said, oh, this whole thing is phony. It's all just a bunch of winds blowing around, making things look like there's an ozone hole. And so all the chemical people are getting depressed. Um, but anyway, eventually they, they started measuring things and it started changing. And uh, we could see there were no nitrogen oxides there. Yes, no. It was a yes, no question. Yes, were there nitrogen oxides? That'd be solar. No, no, it wasn't. And there weren't any. So that wasn't the answer. No. Uh, so the second question was, uh, was the air full of air from the lower atmosphere? Mm -hmm. Well, then it should be full of stuff from the lower atmosphere. Made the measurement. It was a yes, no on that. No, that wasn't mm -hmm. it. And then uh, it got to be toward the end of September, which is when the ozone hole starts to form. And all of a sudden we saw all this chlorine in a form that would destroy ozone. And as it built up, the ozone went down. Mm -hmm. Yes. That was yes. So there's three possibilities. There were two no's and a yes. Mm. The problem was solved. Right. That's you know, they, it got so bad uh, scientifically that after about ten years, Congress said, "Okay, this is boring. You solved the problem. We're cutting all the money off. Don't work on it anymore." Even though we didn't completely solve the problem. So if you're a science person, it's not enough to just know it's chlorofluorocarbons and ban them. Uh, you know, we wanted to know everything about it. And yeah. you know, we still things there we don't know about what's really happening, but we do know it's the chlorine compounds that are destroying the ozone along with some bromine. And uh, so a very valuable lesson was learned there, which is uh, something important to know. Um, does, does that happen a lot in, 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 your, in your experience when there is something which has been 
diagnosed as a problem like let's let's take for instance like you know a lot lot of times there are certain um as you said like the chlorine and those and, and those compounds that help humanity and you've probably seen a lot of things that have been introduced that make human life more com- convenient or modernized if you want to call it and and then you know it's glorified for 10 years and next thing it's demonized like plastics now are a definite no no you don't talk about it as a positive thing at all because how it's affecting marine life how it's affecting our lungs and you mm-hmm. have all these various compounds that are being released into the atmosphere so um how do these things work because sometimes you know as you said congress will give funding for some research then it's no longer convenient or it's no longer relevant or it's no longer getting the votes then they just move on to another thing but as as you said it doesn't come to such a convenient conclusion in a scientific point of view so, so how do you na- like navigate and i mean how does it contribute to the problem because it might be something not as black and white or yes and no it might be a gray area which says yeah it is bad but it's also got some good so when it in 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 context of the climate change problem uh is it really um uh, that there are like say three things that are sort of the detriment of humanity and are going to be the end of our civilization or is it much more complex than that yeah well that's the problem with uh every other thing i've ever worked on <laughs> is that there're no yes no answers right you know they're all very complex and um so there is a fundamental link between the ozone hole problem mm-hmm. uh, the carbon dioxide problem and the problem um with uh, nuclear energy mm-hmm. and that is um how long does this material last in the atmosphere or the environment mm-hmm. you know so the problem with the ozone hole is that those chemical compounds were useful because they were very inert nothing destroyed them and because they're very inert they don't get removed from the atmosphere they build up right. and build up and build up until they become a problem hmm. and they have a lifetime of about 100 years which is why the ozone hole is still there I mean, it has right. hardly diminished and it's not going to diminish until you know the middle of this century when finally these compounds should have been diminished hmm. um the problem with the carbon dioxide greenhouse effect Mm-hmm. is that carbon dioxide has a lifetime in the atmosphere ocean system mm-hmm. um so it dissolves in the ocean and it comes right. to an equilibrium between the atmosphere and the ocean mm-hmm. and that equilibrium you know is pretty fast it happens within about 50 years or something mm-hmm. but then it stays in that system for tens or 100,000 years oh okay so if you put co2 in the atmosphere today for example you drive your car your motorcycle somewhere or you um, turn on some natural gas powered uh, heater um, or you burn something to cook your dinner that carbon dioxide about 20% of that carbon dioxide will still be in the atmosphere thousands of years from now mm. so that's what the problem is it's something that's got a huge time constant you know eventually it gets turned into limestone Mm-hmm. Uh, in the oceans you know and so it gets turned into rocks like the white cliffs of dover or mm-hmm. i'm sure there's plenty of limestone in uh, india and mm-hmm. uh, there and, and there's plenty in china um and you know so eventually it turned into rocks but it takes longer than human beings you know have even existed on the planet you know so we're turn we're doing something every time we burn something that's going to affect the planet on a geologic time scale longer than the lifetime of human civilization uh, you know so, so this, would that we have what you're doing this so what we what we're experiencing now with the uh, water temperatures rising and the entire sort of conversation about climate crisis which people are calling it is it something that um 
clearly it's not what we've done yesterday or today, but it's something that's done according to the timeline you just mentioned about five, ten thousand years back. Is that is that is that am I right no. when I kind of assume that? No, it's this. This was started in um, uh, in the 1900s is when we started producing enough carbon dioxide to matter. Okay. So okay. you know, people are always saying, "Oh, well, we don't understand the theory of what's going on." Well, the theory of what's going on was discovered in the 1880s. People understood in the 1880s the physics behind this. And okay. they predicted that if you doubled carbon dioxide, it would increase the temperature of the planet by about two degrees. If okay. you go with a big fancy climate model and you've got people that you're paying a million dollars a year for the group to run, they're still finding with the big models, <laughs> if you're at double carbon dioxide, the temperature goes up about two degrees centigrade. So we've known this for 140 years now. Yeah. Yeah. The answer hasn't changed. Right. Um, but, you know, we've, we've, we have another question, though, in the, in the 1880s, they were interested in this because they were trying to understand ice ages. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has been involved in huge swings in the Earth's climate in the distant past of you know, hundreds of millions and tens of millions of years ago. Mm-hmm. But they also in the 1880s said, well, how about people? Will people do anything? And they calculated how much CO2 people were producing. And of course, the 1880s population was much smaller than now. Yeah. And so they, they didn't anticipate that it would grow exponentially. And so they thought, oh, in a thousand years, people will be causing a problem. And so they messed up on how long it would take for people to cause a problem. <laughs> yeah, it sounds so like that right, ozone thing. A few people looked over certain numbers. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, people are, con- you know, the average American, I think, produces about five tons of carbon a year. Five, five tons per American. And that's what you know, So people say, million. oh, let's bury the CO2. Let's take the CO2 and bury it. Mm. Well, I'm not quite sure how much an elephant weighs, but I think they weigh about five tons, yeah. which means that you have to bury an elephant for every person every year in the United yeah. States. Now, people don't realize the mass. Sorry, what do you mean by bury? Uh, sorry, I, what do you mean by bury? Yeah, like so physically say, bury? Well, let's con- yeah, let's take the carbon dioxide and convert it into some kind of rock and bury it. Oh, okay. And the, reason, the reason you have to bury it is because if you just keep it around, this is like the problem with trees. People say, mm-hmm. oh, let's, let's plant more trees. You know, the trees, the body of trees is made of air, and trees are made mostly of air, yeah. and air and water, uh, just like people were mostly water. Yeah. Um, so you couldn't put the carbon dioxide in trees. Well, okay, somebody's going to come and cut the tree down in 10 years or something like that when they get bored of you taking up their land, yeah. and the tree will rot, and the CO2 will come right back. So if you want to if you want to get rid of the CO2, you have to bury it in the ground. That's where we got it from. We dug a hole in the ground and yeah. we took it out of places where it had been buried millions of years ago in some totally different climate. Um, and um, you know, it was buried underground as coal or it was buried there as peat or some other organic. So we have to rebury it to get rid of it mm. if we're going to do it that way. Um, and so so the problem here is, is that if you take the uh, weight of all the people on the earth, it, it isn't very much. For example, there's a volcano in the United States called Mount St. Helens that blew mm-hmm. up in 1980, single volcano. It blew a hole in the top of the volcano with about a cubic kilometer of mass being thrown out of it. Mm-hmm. You can take everybody on the earth and stick them in the hole in the top of that volcano. You know, so by mass, people are just not don't wow. amount to that much. Yeah. And of course, it wouldn't be comfortable. You know, you'd be have all the people piled on top of you. Uh, yeah. But nevertheless, however, people are like pond scum. 
you know, so per person, mm. there's about two football fields of land. Mm. So everybody in the earth, you take the, you take the earth's surface and mm. you divide it up to everybody. Everybody gets about two football fields of land. Right. So now you've got two football fields of land and you got your house to put on that. Yeah. And you have to put a little bit of ice on it from Antarctica and you have to move Greenland. You have mm. to have some deserts there. You have to have your trash. Yeah. Um, you have to have your crop and the cows or whatever other things you eat all in this little plot that's, you know, like two football fields. Yeah. So now you have to take your two football fields and every year you have to bury an elephant there. So you can see that <laughs> yeah, this is yeah. not a practical solution to be burying yeah. all that carbon. Uh, if you have a lot of dead elephants there, bury pretty soon. <laughs> um, so we, that's yeah. why we have to do something about not putting more carbon dioxide in the air. Mm. We can't dig up more of it and put more in the air because when we put it in the air, it's going to stay there for thousands and thousands of years. You know, our children and you know, many, many grandchildren downwind, you know, are all going to be affected by that carbon dioxide, but it won't be removed on its own. It won't come out of the atmosphere by itself. Mm. We'd have to spend huge amounts of money to convert it into some solid form. You know, yeah. we could convert it into limestones. You know, there are chemical things we could do to take it out. It'd be very, very expensive to convert it into limestones. It'd take a lot of energy. So we could wait 50 years until we're totally miserable and put more and more CO2 in the air and then pay a fortune to remove it. Or we could just stop putting it in the air now and save a lot of money and we wouldn't right. be miserable in the next few decades. So what, what will happen? Like, because... You know, there's a lot of frenzy, and I, I suppose there is rightfully so uh, in certain scenarios because you said this is something that needs to be prevented, right? Like more uh, exactly. coal uh, burning plants or more oil refineries or whatever it may be, whatever form of carbon right. uh, that's been put out there. But is there a scenario because, you know, um, it is looking like it's just one of these things, which is everyone's shouting about it, but how much real impact is taking place, right? Is, is it how much percentage is it dropping by the emissions of carbon because uh, do you see a scenario where because I, I, the reason i bring it up is i'm reading this book by neil stevenson called um it, it's called um i forget the word um it termination shock and it basically if, you, if you're familiar with his work he talks about futuristic um mm -hmm. doomsday scenarios right and the book i'm reading right now it's almost like when i put down the book and pick up like say um open the app by the guardian it's almost like it's the same thing <laughs> it's 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 not much different between what he's saying as a potential problem because he talks about climate heating, talks about where temperatures are so hot, like say in Arizona or Texas or in Pakistan or India, where people are kind of compounding the problem by the solution, like they're turning up the ACs, but the ACs are uh, adding more to the problem. So you have to do more air conditioning. So do you think that human beings will adapt to these increased levels? Like you said, our kids and our grandkids, do you think the human uh, genes will adapt to be more uh, tolerant to more carbon in the, uh, in the atmosphere? No. Okay. Um, no, I think the problem here is, is that <clears throat> this is a slowly growing problem. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we're going to see the repercussions of this for d hundreds of years, probably as ice slowly melts in the polar caps. Mm -hmm. So what, this is one of these things where the politicians have very short lifetimes. Yeah. Um, you know, their horizons are a few years in the future. Mm. And, you know, they don't want to disturb the people who select them. 
Um, so yeah. they're not going to do anything um, to try to hurt people that are making a lot of money and who pay for them. Um, that's especially in the United States, that's the problem is you have all these wealthy oil people and coal people and things like that. Yeah. And, you know, you, these problems are growing slowly. And um, so they said, well, let's just wait. Uh, the next politician can take care of this problem who will mm, then say the same the thing. Buck. The next yeah. politician, yeah. they'll just pass the problem on. However, what's kind of concern in the science community is that there may be a point at which you can't recover. I mean, I've already mentioned that the carbon dioxide will stay in the atmosphere for thousands and thousands of years. Yeah. So the only way to solve that problem is to take it back out. Yeah. But we also have these massive ice sheets on the planet. And people don't realize how much water is in those ice sheets in Greenland and Antarctica. If they all melted, sea level would rise about 300 feet. Whoa. This is not a problem for me in Colorado because <laughs> boulders at 5,000 feet above sea level. I'm around there, um, Bangalore as well. So you and I, we can still keep talking. <laughs> yeah, right. We're good. Yeah. There did used to be an inland sea here, though, before the oh, yeah? mountains formed. Uh, oh, yeah, wow. the interior of the United States was all covered by a, an inland sea at the time of the dinosaurs. Wow. Um, okay. But nevertheless, we would lose whole states in the United States and almost yeah. all the coastal cities around the world would flood. Uh, you know, 300 feet, that's a lot of water. The entire states would vanish. Um, you know, so we don't want to melt the ice sheets. Mm. And that's what people are in the science community are afraid of, is that we'll lose control of the ice sheets mm. and they'll start melting uncontrollably and we won't be able to halt that even if we remove the CO2. Mm. And the reason for that is because um, there's the reflectivity, it's, uh, there's sunlight coming into the earth from the sun. Mm. And um, it's some of it is reflected by clouds and by ice back to space. Mm. Um, and the part that's not reflected, it's absorbed in the atmosphere and the oceans and the ground. And heats up, yeah. And it heats the earth up. And the way that that's dissipated, that heat is dissipated, is that the earth is radiating energy out, back out to space. Mm -hmm. So there is a, a type of light called infrared light. Mm -hmm. Um, and this is what they discovered in the 1880s, is that the amount of light that any object radiates is proportional to its temperature to the fourth power. Um, so it's a strongly dependent on temperature. So you're radiating energy right now, and I'm radiating energy right now. Mm. You know, people sense this, and if you have a fire, you know, and the, the fire doesn't make the air warm. The, the fire is radiating heat towards you. Yeah. That's why you put your hands out, you know, in front of it to get your hands warm. Is your feet, the light is being absorbed by your hands. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're not sensitive to this as people because it's, it's not like the sun, which is a point source, you know, it's shining all of its energy right on you from a certain direction. Yeah. But the infrared light's coming from all angles, coming from everywhere, you know, and so there's a feeling called clammy, yeah. you know, and that's because if you're in a room and the walls are cold, like you're at some European castle or something yeah. like that, you know, then you're not getting as much infrared from the surroundings as you're radiating. And so that that's the feel out invisible of light that's warming us up, not the actual light that we see. That's right. It's, it's, well, it's actually light. It's just you can't see it with your eyes. Yeah. And um, this actually was discovered by Isaac Newton. I think he had a he had a prism mm -hmm. and he separated the colors of, you know, it was white light from the sun. He, but the prism separated the light into different colors. Mm -hmm. And um, so he put a thermometer into the different colors to trying to find out how much energy was in each color. Mm -hmm. And then he put the thermometer outside where there was no light he could see and it was still getting heated. So there's mm -hmm. obviously a type of light there that was carrying heat, just like all the other wavelengths of light, but you couldn't see it with your eyes. 
And uh, and there's a reason for that, which is that there isn't that much in the atmosphere to see with. Most of the light is in the visible. So that's why we were adapted to see that. Right. Um, and anyway, that infrared light is shining out to space, trying to keep the, the planet cool. Yeah. And so on average, we try to balance the sunlight against the coming in against the infrared light going out. But the amount of sunlight is tapered or affected by clouds, which reflect them back to space and by the ice. Right. And so what we're concerned about and what's happening in the Arctic right now is the ice is retreating, especially the sea ice in the Arctic is retreating. Yeah. And, you know, so people can pay the Russians money and they'll let you sail across their sea without having to go all the way around through the Suez Canal or something like that. Mm. Um, but that ice was bright and it was reflecting light. And so when now it it's away, almost like we have lost reflectors, yeah. We've lost reflectors because the ocean that they were floating in is very black. Mm. And so we're, and that's why we can lose control of it. If, if, if the ice retreats and we get less snow, you know, and there's not as much snow in the winter and that retreats and the snow is lost in the Himalayas, mm. you know, it may never return because now we're warmer because we lost that reflected light. And so that's what people are concerned about in the science community is that, you know, if it gets very much warmer than it is now in the next few decades, we're worried we'll go past a point where we can't recover, even if we remove the CO2, because the earth will have responded by removing snow and by removing ice and, you know, as it then it'll just be warmer and even more so it's ice become a giant absorbent bit. ball as opposed to a reflective ball as well that's it right right now we're a pretty reflective ball we reflect 30 percent of the sunlight back to space um, but you know it could be that you know the ground isn't that reflective it's only like 10 percent or 15 percent so we Oof. could absorb a lot more sunlight so if that happens and you said okay at event eventually we get to this point where 300 feet water levels rise um you know, I, I read somewhere that someone said, oh, this is just a phase. It happens in the planet's history where we've seen temperatures go up more than this. And then it just, it's just a, um, it's, it's a rise in the temperature before the big chill. We're going to see another ice age. Is, is that uh, something you have studied or is that just someone putting out their theory? Because um, you hear so no, many things, I just want to dispel it. No, this is, this is true. Okay. So in the last 600 million years or so, Okay. Uh, which is a time that life is uh, multicellular life has been on the planet, right? Which is not a very big fraction of the Earth's history. Mostly, there's been algae and bacteria around. Right. At any rate, in the past 600 million years, about 90 percent of the time, there have been no ice sheets, and the oh, ocean wow. has okay. been 300 feet deeper. Mm -hmm. And so, it, it's an anomaly to have ice sheets. It's unusual in the planet's history. Uh, so, if you go back, you know. 30 or 40 million years ago, there was no Antarctic ice sheet. Uh, you know, it, there was nothing there for a really long time before. So it was that. just an ocean? Well, no, there was land. land. You know, the okay. dinosaurs were perfectly happy. And there was lots of life. And in fact, you know, lots of tropics, dinosaurs living in the Antarctic continent. Oh, okay. um, so it was much warmer. Mm -hmm. And uh, life was spread out over the whole planet instead of avoiding the poles. So that's fine if you're adapted to it. But, uh, you know, it's going to put New York City underwater and uh, <laughs> yeah. you know, lots, of, lots of cities in India. It's a, yeah. it's a problem with property yeah. uh, in people's lives. And, of course, the other thing is also true. So about 30, 40 million years ago, ice started to form on Antarctica. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's a little hard to know what, what exactly what happened there because continental drift 
it, it used to be that Australia and Antarctica were kind of coupled together. Mm-hmm. And um, the ocean uh, had to go around that big mass. Mm-hmm. And so there was a lot of heat transport by the ocean. But then South America separated from Antarctica and Australia separated. And so now the ocean just goes around in a circle around Antarctica. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so there's a current, so it's going around and around Antarctica. So it's very hard to get warm water down there from the tropics. And mm-hmm. so Antarctica cooled somewhat because of continental drift, uh, uh, okay. opening the oceans up. Um, and, you know, there's other things at the time of the extinction of the dinosaurs, uh, Central America didn't exist and the oceans just flashed back and forth between the Atlantic mm-hmm. and the Pacific. Um, at any rate, um, up until about three or four million years ago, this was a problem in Antarctica. But, you know, they just kept getting cooler and cooler, probably because carbon dioxide was falling down you know, this whole period. Mm. So if you go back to the end of the dinosaurs 66 million years ago, the, the planet has been pretty much cooling steadily ever since then. Mm. And, uh, you know, so it's not just the position of the continents, it's also that carbon dioxide has been falling, mm. which has caused the planet to cool off. Mm. Um, because carbon dioxide is very good at warming the surface. Mm. Um, So as I mentioned, everything is a radiator. And the reason you get the greenhouse effect is that carbon dioxide in the air, not only does it radiate to space, but it radiates to the ground. And so you put more carbon dioxide up there, you get more radiation of the ground, it gets warmer. So it almost insulates the ground, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we get an extra energy source. It's not just the sun, it's also the gases radiating down on us. Right. At any rate, carbon dioxide fell and fell. And after our, about a couple million years ago, it got to be cold enough that we started having ice sheets advancing and retreating and advancing and retreating in the Northern Hemisphere. Mm. And um, we're pretty sure that the reason for that, or the ultimate reason for that, is the carbon dioxide levels fell mm. until the planet cooled off somewhat. Uh, but then what happens is that the Earth's orbit is not really perfectly stable. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the tilt of the axis, if, you know, 22 degrees or so, moves up and down by half a degree or a degree or something like that, uh, just a little bit. And this is what causes, you know, so that the tilt of the planet is what causes winter and summer. Right. So they had a test of Harvard undergrads about why was there winter and summer? And they said, oh, it's because um, the uh, Earth is closer to the sun in the summer. Yeah. No, that isn't true. <laughs> the Earth no. is not closer to the sun in the summer. It's actually closer to the sun during the uh, summer in the southern hemisphere. Right. That's not what it is. What's happening is that the orbit of the Earth is the spin axis of the Earth is like a little top spinning mm-hmm. around. is pointed towards the sun by about twenty degrees from the vertical. Yeah. And it bobs up and down a little bit, and but it, it holds that position as it goes around the sun. So during the summer months, the north pole is pointing toward the sun mm. which is why it's day all time there yeah. in the summer and then in the winter the north the pole opposite. is pointing yeah. the opposite direction away from the sun yeah and so it's dark there all winter and so this little motion of this angle there can make it colder or warmer at the poles yeah. which it does every year between winter and summer yeah and if you bob it up and down you can make ice ages come and go and we know this is happening because if you look at the periodicity of the ice ages, um, you can see the same periodicity of the orbit. You know, so the Earth's orbit is egg-shaped and yeah. it gets more and less egg-shaped, and it's this axis points up and down. And um, the time of year when it's spring, 
um, along the uh, orbit changes also. And those, those three orbital elements mm. um, have definite periods over which they vary. And those same periods are found in when the ice ages are coming and going. So the last time it was like it is now on the Earth was about 100,000 years ago. Mm. Okay, and, um, so there has been a time. After, okay. Yeah, about 100,000 years ago. And then there were a series of major cooling events, mm. and the maximum cooling was about 20,000 years ago. Right. Uh, and then it started warming back up again and, um, you know, reached a kind of current temperature a couple thousand years ago. You know, there are all kinds of excursions about this where some really sudden bad thing happened. But by and large, it was just kind of, you know, one cycle there, 100,000 years, bottoming out around 20 and then recovering. And we expected that same thing to occur again. You know, so the period when it's cold or when it's warm doesn't last very long. It tends to last 10,000 years or something. And then you slide back off on one of these ice sheet advances. Uh, however, it appears from what people are calculating that we're, that's not going to happen at the end of 10,000 years now. Mm. So we've already been okay for 2,000 years. We've only got 8,000 to go mm. before we find out what happens. I don't think I'm going to find out myself personally. Me, me neither. <laughs> People will still be here. Yeah. Uh, but it's predicted that actually, even without a carbon dioxide greenhouse warming, that the orbit el orbital elements are not quite right to drive us into another ice age. Um, I don't okay. have much confidence in this prediction uh, because it's been this cycle of 100,000 years has been going on for quite a while, a million yeah. years or more. So these are all man-made projections, as you just mentioned. So yes, a man-made projection, and I don't think we know that well. The climate models can't simulate ice sheets. Uh, yeah, and as you said, orbital patterns, which is yeah. speculation, right? Yeah, well, no, we know the orbital patterns happen, or absolutely positive those happen. Oh, okay. Because you, okay. Can, you can see them happening, you can measure these changes okay. in, the, uh, in the orbit of the Earth. And, and Mars is even worse, Mars tilts up and down by 10 degrees. And you can see evidence for huge variations in its climate as, it, as the planet tilts up and down. So we have great confidence that those orbital elements are true. And we right. couldn't spend, send spacecraft people if we didn't know that really, to places that we didn't know really well. Um, yeah, that's, so we, I suppose, yeah. We're sure that those orbital elements are changing. And how the Earth responds to that is very complicated. Mm. You know, and right now we can run a climate model for you know, maybe a thousand years or something, but the ice sheets, you know, take tens of thousands of years to come and go. They're very slow, you know, so we, mm. we can't simulate the ice sheets interacting with the climate and the oceans yet. We just don't have fast enough computers. You know, so we, we... Yeah. No, I mean, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt, but no, I'm just understanding, like, you mentioned all the years, which you mentioned are all in the thousands, right? And we seem to be short-sighted, like, and you mentioned this understanding of the, greenhouse gases and the and the warming we knew in 1880 which 140 years back and that's the smallest number you mentioned in the past five minutes otherwise everything's thousand ten thousand hundred thousand millions years back so um i want to understand like we, we we seem to know a lot and you know there are a lot of yeses we know about okay this is for sure but there's a lot of speculation a lot of assumptions and a lot of impacts which we don't know for sure so when we can't really understand our own planet entirely, do you, what is your position on on what's going on beyond our solar system? Whether human, the human species, in its present form, will be able to um, settle on a different planet with what Elon Musk wants to do, or um, understanding alien life—if we call it alien—but maybe life on 
uh, other planets or other systems. Uh, is there something you can talk about or is that something which you're, you're not really uh, concerned with? Oh, yeah, I've, I've spent a lot of my career working on like Mars and Venus and exoplanets and things like mm -hmm. that. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's all kinds of interesting issues there. Mm -hmm. um, so we know quite a bit about the climate of Mars, for example, at the moment. Okay. And um, it's pretty darn cold there. It's about the same temperature as Antarctica. You know, oh, it's not okay. going to be easy to survive on Mars. And it doesn't have a magnetic field, and it doesn't have much of an atmosphere, so you get bombarded with radiation okay, there. Okay. So it's going to be hard to uh, exist there without being getting cancer. Okay. Um, so it's going to be a challenge to uh, terraform Mars. I think the first thing people will do is that they'll go live in um, lava tubes. Um, That's you know, so we, subterranean? Yeah, subterranean. Okay. Right. Uh, because that will shield you from this harmful radiation. Right. Um, I had a work with a friend who has done calculations as to whether there might be ice in these. Mm. Um, so you could go into them and get water and um, you could hide from the damaging radiation, just come out for short periods of time and you could, you know, seal it off and maybe make something habitable. Mm. And, you know, I think that will go on for a while. Then we'll still start building big glass domes to live in or something. And, mm. and so, you know, I think that we will uh, first move people to the moon and show that they can survive there for a while. And then and we can survive on the moon? Um. Uh, well, no, the moon's even worse. Because <laughs> there's no <laughs> atmosphere at all there. And uh, you know, okay. depending where you are, it's, it could be really cold. And um, there's very little water there. You know, people are excited because they think they've discovered some water that can hide out in craters where the sun doesn't shine on it. And mm. So maybe there's some water we can use there. But it, it'll be hard to uh, inhabit Mar the moon. The advantage so Mars is most to... promising? Well, the problem with Mars is it takes a year to get there. Okay. You know, then, you, then you have to land. Mm. If something goes wrong, it takes you a year to get back. You're probably going to die. Um, yeah, so yeah, I wouldn't want to get bad on the first couple of people who try this. That doesn't sound like a um, fun Uber trip. <laughs> right. It's not a good Uber trip. Yeah. But the moon, um, you know, the moon's not very far away a day or two. You know, so you can go to the moon and um, try to build a habitat there and see if you can survive in it and figure out, can you grow food? And mm. that's, I mean, Mars, you're going to have to grow your own food. You know, right. How, how are you going to do that? You know, like, can you really do it? I mean, I can't even grow tomatoes in my garden. You know, I, mean, I wouldn't yeah. trust myself to grow enough food to maintain my life. Yeah. Um, so, so, yes. But there are some interesting things about this that have to do with the survival of species. Right. Um, so, you know, we tend to think we are immortal as human beings or something. But if you look at the geologic record, the average lifetime of a species in the geologic record is about 4 million years. Okay. Um, you know, the Earth is four and a half billion years old you know so the average species you know so that's not even ten percent that's one is that even one percent of a percent tenth of a percent yeah tenth of a percent oh my you god know, there are a few species like horseshoe crabs i assume there's horseshoe crabs near where you live in the oceans are are pretty mm -hmm. universal across the earth they've run around for a couple hundred million years okay so there's there are some species that have been here a long time right uh, but but the average is very short now, it's kind of hard to tell how long humans have been on the planet because there's, you know, our species has mm. only been on the planet about 100,000 years. You know, so we haven't okay. been here very long. Right. Um, and, you know, we're kind of odd because, you know, the, the orders of life, you get the species is the lowest level and then there's a genus above that. And right. Most 
groups have various relatives in the genus, but we're the only species in our genus. But there used to be others, Neanderthals and Denisovians and things like right. that. Right. And you know, then there are all these other Homo and other t- sorts of relatives that are, you know, more primitive that you know been around for a few million years. You know, so our our ancestors have been around for a few million years, and monkeys have been around even longer than that. You know, so it's hard to tell when is when does our four million year clock start turning. Mm, However, okay. my my thought about what is going to happen to us is that we will indeed start going to other planets. Okay. And for example, we will start colonizing Mars. And uh, somebody is going to go there and have children. And they're going to say they like it on Mars. Maybe they had good sunsets or something, you know. And, uh, they like the <laughs> yeah. freedom. Good in stepping. Yeah. <laughs> uh, whatever. Why, why they go there, I don't know. They're going to have children. Yeah. Okay. So it's not too bad for us to go to Mars. Mm-hmm. Because the gravity there is about a third of what it is on Earth. So we're going to feel oh, really strong. Yeah. It's yeah. like in the moon, you know, the astronauts are leaping huge distances. Right. Uh, but if you are a Martian and you try to come to the Earth, you won't you be able to move. Time. You won't be able to move. You yeah. have a tough time. So th- those people are not going to come back. You know, their children will not come back to the Earth. So their um, frame of reference it, begins in on Mars. It's not like... Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so what's going to happen is they're going to... This is a way species evolve. They become isolated from each other. And after a while, they um, develop different traits. And pretty soon, they're no longer compatible. They can't reproduce together. They're separate species. And so I think the people who go to Mars will be the start of another species of people. Uh, you know, and that so, sounds fascinating, yeah. Yeah, so you've probably seen like the Star Wars movies and things where they have all these bar scenes where there's you know, they're all sitting there drinking in the bar and there's all kinds of weird other aliens there, like yeah. Jabba the Hutt, this big yeah, yeah. fat guy, and, um, you know, other mean aliens and stuff like that. I don't think that those are aliens. I think with those you're picturing there, those are all different humans. They're all different species of humans, you know, and they came from some different planetary body where yeah. they evolved away from us and became a separate species. And, you know, that's why they can sit around at a bar and they can all drink alcohol and breathe whatever atmosphere is there is because, you know, they've adapted their planet, geoengineered their planet to be like ours, but they couldn't escape from the gravity problem and some other issues. And so they evolve differently. That's fascinating. That's that's what I think is the fate of us. And it's probably not a long time fate. You know, I don't know how long it will be, but um, it could be decades. Now, that's fascinating. I, now, do you think we are a product of that from some other planet? No, I don't think so. Um, okay. There are people who think that, um, you know, there there are meteorites on the Earth that came from Mars. Mm. Um, and, you know, what happens is, you know, an asteroid hit Mars, and we see this happen all the time. They hit right. Mars, and it blows rocks into space, and then the rocks come down and land on the Earth. And, um, you know, there's most of the asteroids we find on the Earth are some other place, but, you know, some fra- small fraction of them come from Mars. And um, so lots of astronomers say, oh, well, if you go look at asteroids like carbonaceous chondrites, which are a very common asteroid, mm. um, you know, they, they look like a rock that's made up of all kinds of little pebbles. And so it's a, it, it's not homogeneous. It's got all the little pieces to it. Yeah. And it's called carbonaceous because it's full of carbon. And they even contain uh, various carbon compounds that are organic. 
Mm. Um, and so they say, oh, well, that's how we came to be, is that stuff from space came and landed on the Earth and delivered all these um, chemicals to Earth, which then evolved to become people. Um, I, I don't think that's what happened. I think the okay. Earth is it's much easier to imagine that these compounds form on the Earth uh, than coming from space. Right. For example, a group just found that uh, certain kinds of clays will um, take some simpler organic compounds and make RNA out of it. Mm. So our RNA is half of the DNA. Mm. And, you know, the RNA is capable of telling uh, organisms how to make proteins. Uh, you know, so it, it, the, the chemistry in the Earth's atmosphere, the Earth's atmosphere has not always been like it is now. Mm. So before 2 billion years ago, there was basically no oxygen in the atmosphere. Uh, oh. and, and, you know, it's still in nitrogen like now, but there was no oxygen to speak of. Mm. And so that's, you know, half of the history of the Earth, there was no oxygen. You know, it's, it okay. rose around 2 billion years ago and probably around 600 million years ago, it got to be high enough to make an ozone shield and keep the earth from being sterilized by ultraviolet light. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so that's probably what kept life from becoming very complicated from 2 billion years. And well, life, life on the planet, as far as we know, is about 3.6 billion years old. Mm -hmm. And so for 3.6 to 600 million years ago, not much happened. There was just because a bunch of, the, of algae floating around. Right. And, you know, and then suddenly 600 million years ago, something happened. And um, all of a sudden, complex life forms occurred. And there's various theories about what happened. You know, one theory is that, well, oxygen levels became high enough that um, creatures could metabolize with it. Um, you know, it's much more efficient to use oxygen to make energy with. And an ozone shield may have been developed that was protected some things. Uh, that's one theory. Another theory is that somebody developed um, carnivores. You know, mm. and so before then, nobody was hunting you and trying to eat you. Right. And so you weren't motivated to develop defenses. You know, all of a sudden, yeah. Yeah, yeah. somebody came, started coming around trying to eat you. And so <laughs> then you had to develop defenses. Yeah. And so that may have caused life to become more complex. The other theory is that there were several episodes around 600 to 700 million years ago when the earth nearly froze over. Mm. So something happened to cause ice to extend all the way into the tropics. Mm. As far as we know, that there, were, there was ice over the whole planet. And of course, this is kind of a stable situation because it makes the earth very bright. And so it's happy being cold. And uh, we think that these things went away because volcanoes produce more and more carbon dioxide. And over millions of years, it built up in the atmosphere and got it warm enough to melt the ice and mm -hmm. return things to uh, a planet that wasn't totally covered in ice. So this is called snowball earth. Mm -hmm. And it, it may be that the freezing over of the earth stimulated life to become more complicated and uh, complex so that it could deal with these extreme Climate kind of rise to the challenge kind of thing. an ice challenge yeah. so we don't know what happened but something happened back in there um, you know so life has a long history on the planet but it also got stuck and so it got stuck for you know from it got stuck for four billion years it didn't really do much yeah uh, you know, and uh, you know then it you know slowly started evolving you can still it still gets stuck 
Um, so, for example, the dinosaurs. So the, the dinosaurs arose about 250 million years ago after a mass extinction event. Yeah, yeah. And um, they weren't the rulers of the earth. There were things that sort of like crocodiles back the, that were the rulers of the earth. Right. And then about 200 million years ago, there was another mass extinction event. Mm. Both of these were probably driven by carbon dioxide fluctuating uh, greatly and changing the climate. Um, at any rate, then the dinosaurs took over. And so these two mass extinction events eliminated the status quo. You know, whoever was a ruler at the time got wiped out in the extinction and somebody else took over. Uh, you know, so mm. it was the dinosaurs. And they, and this is kind of an interesting thing. So dinosaurs dominated the earth as large animals, mm -hmm. but mammals dominated the earth as little animals. So there weren't a lot of little dinosaurs. The little guys were mammals. Like so us. what kind of mammals uh, were there at that time? Well, you know, they evolved over time and they they were largely little guys or kind of mouse-like things. Mm. And um, at the time of the extinction of the dinosaurs, there were some mammals that were like a dog, a small dog around. And a lot of, at the time of the extinction of the dinosaurs, a lot of them were marsupial kinds of mammals. There were different types of mammals than the ones that dominate us now. Um, but at any rate, That's how we came into being and the leaders of the planet. Right. It wasn't that the mammals outcompeted the dinosaurs. The mammals had been here, you know, for 150 million years with the Just dinosaurs. Right under the radar. <laughs> yeah, we weren't getting anywhere. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like we suddenly got up and started killing off the dinosaurs. Yeah, yeah. They just yeah. stepped on us whenever they wanted to, and otherwise we hid in little holes. Right. Um, and that's how we probably survived the the asteroid hit and all the various exactly uh, and that's exactly what happened and i wrote a paper about this once and you know we went back and looked at the evidence for who survived mm -hmm. and that's who survived if you were the type of creature that lived on a little hole yeah um then you know you could survive a mass fire which probably everything in the earth burned when the asteroid hit the surface and then it got very cold and uh, this didn't last long maybe a, a decade or something like that But the, the little guys had the advantage that if the dinosaurs probably burned up in the fires and they couldn't find enough to eat and the little mice that were our ancestors, you know, just went and ate a bunch of worms underground and waited for the smoke and the fires to clear and then came out. And, and down where I live in Colorado, there's a very nice um, geological exposure where there's about a million years of history of the evolution of mammals. Oh. And you can see they, they started really little and pretty soon they were like the size of a raccoon or a pangolin. pangolin. I don't know if they have raccoons in India. Uh, we have pangolin similar. We were just talking about this yesterday. We have similar kinds of things like bandicoots and uh, other yeah, kinds bandicoots. of rodents. Yeah, which are right. pre pretty. You know, so uh, took about a million years for that, that kind of a creature to um, come out. But, you know, right after the extinction event, uh, it was, again, crocodiles that ruled the world. And then for a while, it was giant birds. So like ostriches ruled the world for a while. Um, you know, so we're a pretty recent invention here. You know, we've only been around for a few million years. And it looks like the roaches have a bright future. <laughs> a lot of people think that uh, if we have a nuclear war, that cockroaches will be the dominant um, thing left on the earth. But Interesting. I want to talk about that uh, because you... Um, gave a talk about this as well um you know a lot of the things you've mentioned now are planetary they're systemic they're and in some in some context you know we've adapted to the chemical composition or elemental disposition that we have access to when we, we are what we are because of 
what has happened and we are here today. But um, coming to things that are in our control, um, you, you have, as you mentioned, we spoke about nuclear war and nuclear weapons. And, you know, in the context of, you said, I think you have been an advisor and you and were on a panel that, uh, you know, kind of gave recommendations to world leaders about uh, 30 years ago, maybe, maybe earlier, or maybe later. But I want to ask you, I want to go down this conversation before we wind up for today is um, you mentioned that Okay, I, maybe you'll take it in a different direction. D- d- with the context of Ukraine and Russia right now and what's happening with Taiwan and China, um, can you just paint a picture of where we stand? Because uh, it, it is pretty uh, interesting how some in some context people mention nuclear energy as something that can replace fossil fuels. But at the same time, it is incredibly uh, disheartening when you look at the past and how nuclear energy at least... Um, how uranium is being disposed and how it's being stored, and you look at what's hap- what happened with the tsunami and in Japan, the nuclear energy, the spills and the and 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 the damage as a result. So maybe can you just paint a picture of where we stand today with nuclear energy and nuclear weapons? Yeah, sure, I'm not an expert on nuclear energy, but it has okay. the same problems as carbon dioxide and the ozone hole. Nuclear radiation has a lifetime that's um, tens of thousands of years or longer. Mm. That's what I don't like about it. You start building reactors all over the place. A a building lasts 100 years and you've got to bury the reactor. And you've created all that waste. There's 100,000 tons of waste around the earth now that's radioactive. And it's going to be radioactive for thousands of years. You know, so I, I think that that's a difficult path to take unless we find some other cycle but, you know, I'm optimistic that fusion will be um, understood in the next few decades. And, you know, right. fusion will solve huge problems because it doesn't produce a lot of radioisotopes as far as we know, <laughs> which we don't know because we haven't controlled it. Uh, but right. if, it, if it isn't producing long-lived isotopes and it, it could eventually power the earth mm. and also get rid of the trash problem because you just throw all your trash in there and it'll reduce it back to elements and you can pile the elements up and make other stuff out of it. Oh, that would be lovely. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> it'd be great. Solve two problems at once, energy and trash. Right. Uh, nuclear weapons are a different situation. And so I got into this problem of uh, nuclear weapons because of the extinction of the dinosaurs. Mm-hmm. You know, when, when that was discovered in the early 1980s, you know, we said, wow, well, what happened there? You know, and what happened there was that the asteroid started everything on the earth on fire. And there's a, a layer, you, you put your hand on it, and most places on the earth, I can go down to Southern Colorado, there's an explosion, you can touch it. Mm-hmm. The layer that's got the asteroid in it. And also in that same layer, there's smoke, mm-hmm. 66 million year old smoke. And the that's in our topsoil, you're saying in the top layer? No, it's in a geological strata, you know, so depending right. on where you are, like, where I am, it's ex- exposed okay. in this place where some erosion has exposed this ancient land. Uh, and other places is buried. And so you have to go of to course, a place yeah, yeah. exposed. Right. Um, at, any, at any rate, um, you know, like India, the Deccan traps are about the same age, okay. um, which is a bit of lava flow in India. Um, at, at any rate, we know that there was a global fire there because to make that much smoke, you had to burn everything on the planet. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we were trying, we were modeling this, trying to understand what this did to the dinosaurs, which of course they mostly burned up in the fires. But there was also 75% of the species on the planet went extinct, extinct along Whoa. with the dinosaurs. So there's a mass extinction in the oceans, which isn't going to care about fires. 
Right. What happened there is all this smoke in the upper atmosphere blocked the sun from reaching the surface. The phytoplankton couldn't reproduce anymore. They all got eaten by the zooplankton and the fish and the food chain collapsed in the oceans. Um, so they starved to death in the oceans. Uh, and so we were looking at nuclear weapons and thinking, well, wow, the, the, the same kind of thing happens when you explode a nuclear weapon. If you look at Hiroshima, for example, from the Second World War, there was a nuclear bomb that went off there, killed mm. about 100,000 people and very quickly. Uh, but it also started a fire in the whole city. The whole city burned. Mm. Um, and uh, that energy release from that fire was a thousand times bigger than the energy release from the bomb. So these fires are incredibly Whoa. energetic. Right. And um, they, there are pictures of the smoke from this fire, mm. which went up to the stratosphere. And that matters because in the lower atmosphere, if you have a fire, a forest fire or something, the smoke tends to be pretty low. Yeah. And the next time it rains, it gets washed away. So it stays in the atmosphere for a week or something like that. I mean, it's but bad it for carbon up. levels, but it can be at least immediately washed away. Yeah, yeah. It can be immediately washed away. But if you put it in the stratosphere, it never rains in the stratosphere. The stratosphere is kind of where commercial airliners fly. Yeah. And they fly at the very bottom of the stratosphere. So if you put it above where commercial airliners fly, it'll stay for a couple of years. And uh, what we predicted in models in the 1980s is the sun would heat it, you know, because it's black. Yeah. And it would rise even higher and go very high in the atmosphere. And we've actually observed this in the last few years. Now, there have been two massive fires that did put lots of smoke into the stratosphere and it rose to very high altitudes mm. because of the sun shining on it. So we can see that part of the predictions from these models is true. Um, so we have this situation now where we know what happened to the dinosaurs, which we think was a mass fire yeah. globally. And we have forest fires, which you know are just barely doing things to change the earth. And then we have attacking every city on the planet with nuclear weapons. Okay. Oh, so sorry, you just mentioned problem. so the wildfires we're seeing right now aren't, uh, I mean, of course it's bad, but you're saying it's not going to have the global impact that the fires that the asteroid strike had or like Hiroshima had. Right. So okay. the amount of smoke. Um, okay. So uh, we think a nuclear went, a nuclear war between the US and Russia and NATO. Mm would put about 150 million tons of smoke into the upper atmosphere, Whoa. 150 million tons. But we think at the time of the dinosaurs there were 15,000 million tons. And so there was you know, 100 times more smoke at the time of the dinosaur extinction. Right, okay. And these little fires from Brit in British Columbia and Australia in the last few years, they put in about a tenth of a percent as much as we think would come from a nuclear war. And okay. so we have examples on either end of the problem, natural examples that we know something about. But, mm. you know, in the, the nuclear war, you can't do that experiment. You know, science likes experiments and observations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, we can't do that. <laughs> uh, so we don't really know exactly what would happen. You know, it depends on modeling. And But uh, there are several things that are worth knowing about in this. So right now, um, Russia and the United States have about 8,000 strategic nuclear warheads um, that are either deployed, they have about half of them deployed, and the other half in storage, 8,000. Right. There are only 200 cities in Russia with 100,000 people in them. There's only 300 cities in the United States with 100,000 people in them. 
There's 500 cities with 100,000 people. Mm. There's 8,000 weapons. That's 16 nuclear weapons for each city with 100,000 people. This isn't that much different between Pakistan and India. Yeah. I think in I think Pakistan has 60 cities with more than 100,000 people. Yeah. And India right now has 150 nuclear weapons that we th- mm. we believe. Right. Um, so it could bomb each Pakistani city at least three times. I mean, three nuclear yeah. weapons. Yeah. It's not quite equal because there's like 450 cities in India with more than 100,000 people, and Pakistan yeah. has got 150 weapons, so yeah. it doesn't have quite enough to bomb all of them. Yeah. However, Pakistan is rapidly increasing its arsenal. We believe by the end of the decade that um, India and Pakistan will each have more like 250 weapons, maybe a few more. Some people mm-hmm. think Pakistan will be the third largest nuclear power in terms of the number of weapons that they have. They're probably trying to go to 450 so they can bomb every city in India. Or who knows why they're choosing these numbers? It's an irrational What would happen? Because you mentioned what happened with the bomb that was dropped on Hiroshima, right? Um, but what would happen like, and, and what is the power of one of these bombs, which say India or the US or Russia or NATO or Pakistan mm-hmm. have? Yeah, so we don't know what the yield of the Indian and Pakistani weapons are because they're not controlled by any treaties. And, you know, the last test was in 1998, so we don't know from tests what they have. But, you know, it's Korea, North Korea developed a couple hundred kiloton weapon in a couple of years, probably mm-hmm. because Russia and China, one or the other, told them what to do. Right. Um, so we don't know. China, uh, India and Pakistan both claim to have higher yield weapons. Mm. Um, but who knows if they have them or not? We don't know. Yeah, yeah. So we've looked at <clears throat> what happens if you explode one weapon in um, <clears throat> an Indian or Pakistani city. Right. And uh, so in certain cities, um, so the, the smallest nuclear weapon on an American submarine is mm. 100 kilotons. So that means it has the explosive energy of 100,000 tons of conventional explosive. So you can imagine you can't put 100,000 tons in an airplane. Right. That's why nuclear weapons were made. They were made to destroy cities with single weapons. You know, so one of these bombs can destroy an entire city and burn it to the ground. And, um, you know, so depending on what city you attack, um, you know, if you attack uh, New Delhi or a highly populated city in India, you're going to kill... You know, hundreds of thousands of people, at least in, um, you know, I've forgotten exactly the number of different cities. The last time I did this was Hong Kong, mm. 100,000. You could kill a million people in Hong Kong with one weapon with 100, um, Kilo- 100 kilotons of yield. And, and that's just with the yield. bomb, not with the... Bi- just with the, with the bomb. Yeah, right. So we predicted, you know, if there were a war between India and Pakistan mm-hmm. um, that used... Um, 50 weapons of each side of five right. kilotons or 15 kilotons, which is a Hiroshima sized bomb and which is the size that both countries tested. Did 50 you say weapons 15 kilotons? Kilotons. 15, 15 right. kilotons. Um, that you probably kill some, something like 50 million people. Whoa. In, in, between the two countries. On the other hand, if you had a hundred kiloton weapons, yeah. And you used 150 of them. Mm. No, you used 250 of them. Right. So we're, we're hypothesizing that in a few years, there'll be 500 weapons between India and Pakistan, 250 yeah. each. Yeah. 
And we think India won't use all of theirs. They'll want to hold some back because they want to keep China out of it. Right. And um, so they so they wouldn't use a whole arsenal. And they use some of them to attack military bases where there's not much located there. Uh, but we hypothesize 250 nuclear weapons would be used in cities in India and Pakistan. And between, depending on the yield, yeah. is it five kilo, 15 kilotons or is it 100 kilotons? Right. Depending on the yield, either 50 or 150 million people would die almost instantly. 50 to 150 million people. And so more people would die in India, mm. but India has a bigger population, so a bigger mm. fraction of the Pakistani population dies. Mm. But nevertheless, it's a disaster for each country. Mm. And that's not the worst part of it. So what happens is that the well, it amount gets of smoke, yeah, I guess, well, as a, depending on your point of view, what better means. I mean, uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's, I'm sure the cockroaches are like, yeah, this, this the is The cockroaches are all for this, yeah. <laughs> They're listening to this you podcast know, going, I like this, <laughs> go <yeah>. on. <laughs> so uh, we believe the amount of smoke that would be generated in a war between India and Pakistan mm-hmm. would be some, somewhere between 5 million tons and about 50 million tons. Mm. five and 50. So it's, it's less than a U.S.-Russia war, right. but not that much. It's maybe a third as much, you know, but that's still a lot of smoke. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so what happens to the smoke? It goes upward mm. because they'll generate these uh, big thunderstorms from the fires, right. which are incredibly intense. And that'll put all this stuff into the stratosphere. And you know, which so this whole chain has been observed, you know, going from burning something like a forest and going to the stratosphere. So we know about that. But we don't know how much fuel is in Indian cities and Pakistani cities. There are mm-hmm. a lot of uncertainties in there about what's there, what it will burn. Um, but nevertheless, if it does go into the stratosphere, it'll, it spreads over the whole earth yeah. within a very short period of time, a few weeks, because it heats the stratosphere to 50 by 50 degrees centigrade, which Whoa. incidentally yeah. destroys the ozone layer. Right. And so you you just really destroy the ozone layer and which lets all kinds of ultraviolet light get to the ground, which we've never experienced in human history. We have no idea how the biota will respond to that. Mm-hmm. They probably wouldn't like it. And you probably wouldn't be able to walk outside of your house mm. um, for very long without getting a bad sunburn, mm. you know, tens of minutes or something like that. So anyway, that's bad. But the worst part of it is, is it stops the light from reaching the surface of the planet, right. uh, which is what happened with the, with the dinosaurs and the asteroids. Mm. The sunlight was cut off. With the dinosaurs, we think the sunlight fell to a level which is a hundred millionth of normal, you know, Whoa, 10 okay. to the minus eight, a hundred millionth. Surprisingly, people can still see like that. That's the side of a moonless night. Your eye is Whoa. not linear. Yeah. You know, so cameras are linear. Yeah. Your eye is logarithmic. Yeah. And so you can see tiny, tiny amounts of light, whereas cameras can't, which is why right. we have trouble taking pictures of things. They won't don't react like your eye. Yeah. So anyway, at 10 minus 8, you know, birds could still fly around and probably did at the time of the extinction of the dinosaurs and hunting stuff, but it'd be pretty dark. Mm-hmm. Um, now, U.S.-Russia war, we think there'd be about 30% of the light would be left. Um, you know, the, in the war between India and Pakistan, it'd be you know, 90% left to maybe 50% left, depending on how big the weapons are. And this would affect everything, right? From agriculture to... Absolutely. And so what happens, we know exactly what happens when the light goes down because it happens every day. You know, it's night, it gets cold. Yeah. Okay, no mystery there. What happens in the winter? The sun is, you know, the pole's not tilting to the sun anymore in the Northern Hemisphere. 
we lose light, it gets cold and starts snowing. Yeah. Um, so we know exactly what will happen. This is totally within the range of climate models um, to simulate because they simulate the day and the year all the time. Yeah. Uh, and so in the worst case, which is a NATO, Russia, US war, you get what's called a nuclear winter. Mm. And so what the definition of that is if you go to some place, a grain growing region. So we looked at the Ukraine mm -hmm. and Iowa. Mm -hmm. So Ukraine's a big grain growing region in Europe and yeah. North Africa. And, and um, Iowa's a big grain growing region in the US. Mm. And uh, the temperatures start falling soon after this war, you know, within a month or so it's below freezing in mm. both places. There's not a single day for two years in which the lowest temperature of the day is above freezing. So two below, years freezing below freezing every day for two years. That's You're crazy. not going to grow anything at mid-latitudes. That's You know, it's still warmish in the tropics. You could still, in fact, India does okay with this, except the fact that everybody's dead from the bomb blast. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's, you're a little more tropical. It'll still be okay yeah. warmish there. Um, but, you know, this kind of a war is going to destroy all the transportation and everything else. So this is something people How do you don't get realize. There? Yeah, yeah. It's something people don't realize is that, you know, at least... In a lot of the world, people have either read the Bible or they've read the Quran, and they both yeah. have the same story, which is about Joseph and mm. uh, the Pharaoh of Egypt. And so the Pharaoh of Egypt is having dreams about cows. And so he dreams about seven good fat cows and then seven skinny cows. He doesn't know what this means. And so he goes to talk to Joseph, who's a prisoner in the jail. Yeah. Why in the world does he talk to Joseph? It doesn't make any sense. Yeah. <laughs> but I guess Joseph's interpreting dreams of prisoners, which are probably pretty bad. He had a, and anyway, he had the a good says, rep in the this? prison. <laughs> yeah, what does this mean, the Pharaoh says? And Joseph yeah. said, there's going to be seven good years and seven bad years. So you should store up grain for seven years. And then you can feed the Egyptians for seven bad years. Right. And so in the Bible, in the Quran, the Pharaoh does this and becomes a big hero Pharaoh. And of course, he's got a term of 15 years, which is longer than any president or other leader in the current world. Um, but at any rate, this is not true. Yeah. Um, the current world has enough grain and storage for 60 days, two mm. months. After wow. 60 days, everybody's starving. Uh, and so why doesn't this happen all the time? And the reason for that is transportation. Mm. So in the modern world, you know, a modern city only has enough food for about a week in hand. And so if something happens, you know, to isolate a city, all the food's gone within a week. And then you know, people have to bring in more food. Like if they can't do that, then people are going to starve. We and saw it happen in Sri Lanka. I mean, as we speak, it's... Sure. Know. I, I want to ask you, um, I mean, this is... It's quite crazy just hearing all these models and actual mm -hmm. calculations. But you mentioned something earlier that how a lot of these things can't be put um, put right because politicians have very short-sighted views and they're just four-year terms or three-year terms or whatever it may be. But at the same time, a long-standing um, leader, um, like say a, a Putin or someone who's been there in power for or a despot, I mean, some of them turn to be despots, but like an autocrat for 20, 30 years, the problem is what happens then is they just, the power goes to their head or they end up making decisions like what's happening right now, which, uh, they, so it's it's kind of like 
short-sighted is not good, but they're in power for too long, then they end up getting uh, these ideas which not always end up well uh, uh, or end up g- doing good for other people. Uh, so what, with, with, you mentioned something which was how you, about 30, 40 years, world leaders were warned against nu- the, this entire situation, the scenario that nuclear war can create. And they put measures in place to kind of reduce tensions, reduce the arsenal that's being built. What, sitting with... Um, the leaders today and seeing the mindset of people with social media, with information, with all this polarizing conversation going on with the left and the right, with everything being so extreme on either end. What, what is a, I mean, since we, since we spoke about the positives with, with the war and not the positive, but all the scenarios that are playing out, what, what would you say with your all your experience, because you spend a lot of time in this space, in this field, and you've given a lot of people advice, what, can we expect with, say, the Russia-Ukraine war, with 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 NATO, what's going on, with everything, with resources being delayed, with um, a lot of the things that you said, some of it has come to fruition right now as we speak. So what what is something you are looking at it, the news every day, with all your knowledge, with all your experience, with all the years you've spent, and what is the next, let's say, not even a year, let's, the next few months mm-hmm. looking like? Well, let me backtrack for a minute to the 1980s. Yeah. So at that time, I was working with Carl Sagan, who happened mm-hmm. to be an incredibly good communicator of science to the public. Mm-hmm. And uh, so he was very well known. And uh, when we discovered this nuclear winter thing, Carl told everybody about it in sight. Mm-hmm. And at the time, Ronald Reagan was the president of the United States. Right. He was kind of, he was kind of a Trumpian figure. He was very much like <laughs> Donald Trump, except right. that he could complete a sentence and and you know, wasn't totally addled, um, but you know, he he yeah. appeared to people to be uh, extremely dangerous, and people were afraid he was going to start a nuclear war. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then in Russia, the leader was Gorbachev, right? And um, who uh, the Russians, of course, blame partly for the end of the Soviet Union, right? But at any rate, Ronald Reagan actually wanted to get rid of the nuclear weapons on the planet all of his life. He thought they were terrible, right? And so did Gorbachev. And so uh, in the mid-1980s, there was a furor going on around the world because of nuclear winter and people telling us everybody that a nuclear war would kill everybody in sight. Mm. And, um, you know, Carl was able to communicate this very clearly to the Congress. And, you know, Ronald Reagan understood it. He, He and Gorbachev reached an agreement in 1986 to eliminate short range missiles in Europe. Right. And before doing that, um, Reagan said, um, you know, scientists have been telling us that if we have a nuclear war, it's going to be like the year without a summer, which was caused by a volcano. And agriculture was failing because of all this stuff being put into the atmosphere. And if uh, one volcano can do that, a nuclear war could certainly do it, make it worse. Yeah. So he understood it, which is quite surprising to people who were there at the time, but he definitely understood it. Mm. And Gorbachev, <laughs> likewise, after the after the event, said, yeah. you know, Russian and American scientists, he put Russians first because yeah. he believed Russian scientists could care less about American scientists. Yeah. <laughs> but Russian and American scientists are telling us, mm. you know, that you, you, know, you can't win a nuclear war. And, uh, and uh, so people of morality and... Um, uh, judgment, realize we have to do something about this. He was much more eloquent than my paraphrase. Um, but nevertheless, Reagan and Gorbachev did agree to do something. 
And every American president and every Russian president since then has reduced nuclear arsenals. Mm. Unfortunately, in the Trump administration, he walked away from the treaty that those two presidents had um, created. Of course. Um, partly because he thought the Russians were violating it. The Russians now have thousands of tactical nuclear weapons that they can use against Europe. You know, this is a real danger that I don't think Europeans are aware of. You know, there's a huge Russian arsenal that's meant to carry nuclear weapons all over Europe with airplanes, with cruise missiles, with conventional missiles. This is very, very dangerous. Mm. But nevertheless, my point is that at that time, leaders that you wouldn't have thought would pay attention to you, given what was going on at the time, did actually know what was going on. And they had paid attention to it. And they knew they had science communities in both the United States and Russia and elsewhere that told the leaders that, you know, they didn't need 70,000 nuclear weapons. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it was ridiculous. Yeah. We don't need 8,000 nuclear weapons. I already said, you know, it's 16%. like someone saying, I have nine guns at home to defend my family. <laughs> yeah, right. And they're more like 900. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. And some explosives too. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so they did something. And, you know, that had a big effect. And, um, you know, not only did Russia, the U.S. build them down, but, other countries stopped trying to make nuclear weapons or got rid of the ones they had. Yeah. And, you know, five or six years later, the Soviet Union disintegrated and the Ukraine and a couple of other Soviet states gave their weapons back to Russia, got rid of them. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, you know, so it appeared for a little while in the early 1990s as if peace had broken out and mm -hmm. rationality was was going to take over the earth and we would solve our problems by debating <laughs> and you know, calmly discussing things, you know, and I, I yeah. think that thought actually persisted for a couple of decades. And even Putin was excited about it in his youth, of the thought that, um, you know, Russia could be a, a European, normal European country and highly successful and things like that. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure why he has changed his mind, but I, we're in a very dangerous position right this minute. And, um, you know, there's there's three reasons we're in a really dangerous position. One of them is there's a lot of nuclear weapons there. There's these 8,000 weapons, Oof. which could cause a nuclear winter and uh, could kill most of the people on the planet. You know, we're predicting, uh, you know, a war between India and Pakistan could kill, could kill billions of people. Yeah. And a war between across NATO could kill maybe 5 billion people. So that's very dangerous. The second thing that's very dangerous is that countries are not resolving their problems, um, which they could. I mean, there's no reason that India and Pakistan can't solve the Kashmir problem. Yeah. You know, they should be able to sit down and solve that problem somehow. There's too many egos being, know. yeah. Yeah, I don't know how they're going to solve it, but yeah. it seems to be not being a politician. They should solve that problem instead of destroying yeah. each other. Yeah. And, you know, Russia and the United States ought to be able to solve these other problems without having a nuclear war. And even Putin doesn't believe there's a nuclear war. You know, although he was saying things a few weeks or months ago that uh, there could be a nuclear war over Ukraine, you know, he just uh, sent a message to the United Nations, which is having a review of nuclear weapons in the next few weeks. Yeah. He said, oh, well, a nuclear war uh, can't be won and should never be fought. Um, you know, so okay, that's good. what he really thinks. Is, I mean, yeah. the guy, uh, Putin is not stupid. Yeah. yeah. He knows that Russia would be nothing but a smoldering ruin if there was a nuclear war. And there, he, and he doesn't no want to destroy it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't really want to um, destroy that. But the other thing that's scary, and we have to do something about, is that there's a new arms race going on. 
There's an arms race between India and Pakistan building up bigger and bigger arsenals. There's no reason that they need any more weapons than they already have. Yeah. They can kill 100 million people. What do you need? Well, yeah. Exactly. Uh, but it's even Bush worse in Russia and the U.S. You know, you, Obama administration gave the uh, Department of Defense and Energy hundreds of billions of dollars to go refresh the arsenal. They were supposed to like patch it up and make sure it still worked. But no, they have to go out and build new weapons. That's oh, what they're man. doing. And the Russians are building new weapons. And this is really scary. So right now what happens is it takes about 30 minutes for a Russian rocket to hit the United States. Mm -hmm. So what that means is, is that you can imagine President Biden, every so sleepy Joe, okay, he's, he's not alert and attentive. You can imagine Joe's asleep because <laughs> yeah. it's nighttime in the U.S. And all of a sudden, Jill Biden comes running down the hallway saying, wake up, Joe, wake up. You've got 20 minutes to decide whether you want to end Western civilization by launching the rockets because the Russians have launched theirs. You know, and, what is and he's got that ball, you said, the one he carries, right? Yeah, he's got the briefcase. He can launch the weapons all by himself. No one can stop him. And uh, he has That's 20 minutes to decide if this is a false alarm. Yeah. And there have been numerous false alarms in the past when oh, people they have? thought there was a launch. And it's only just by luck that the other side waited and uh, decided to make sure before they launched their weapons. So this is very, very dangerous. But we're facing something worse now because, you know, Russia, for example, claims, and I think they actually do have, drone submarines. They call them torpedoes. The objective of which is to put a really big bomb on it and go put it in harbors around the world. And if they feel threatened, they blow them up. They just threatened the British with this. They put one of these things downwind of them and blow it up and spray radiation all over Britain. Then they also have hypersonic gliders that they've got that they've built. The point of the hypersonic glider is to um, have something that can shorten the life, the times from 20 or 30 minutes to a few minutes. And that just makes it worse. You know, uh, you have no time to decide. You can't even wake do. him up from bed. <laughs> yeah, don't have time to wake him up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, then they also, uh, a year or two ago, had a cruise missile blow up, which was a, um, a um, missile that's powered by a radioactive en engine like a submarine is. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that the Russians would launch these things. They'd fly around in the atmosphere forever. And if they ever decided they want to start a war, they just push a button and they all go attack immediately. So you, you oh, have okay. these things in the atmosphere all the time, and it could just suddenly attack you. And you don't have to say thought about building something like this a few decades ago, and it occurred to them, wait a minute, what if I want to land it? What if it doesn't work? <laughs> it's got to come down and blow up, <laughs> which is what happened to the Russians. So things did blow up. Um, oh, at any rate, where are we headed with this? We're headed to artificial intelligence. Hmm. We're going to have to have artificial intelligence come very soon start telling us whether we're under attack and whether we should respond. So I don't know about you, but my computer does not work well. I can't <laughs> yeah, get yeah. Zoom to work. My microphone <laughs> doesn't work half the time. The stupid thing is constantly doing something wrong. Do I yeah. have any faith that artificial intelligence should be deciding for me that the country's under attack and we should launch our weapons? But that's going to happen to us if we don't do something about these new weapons that Russia and the U.S. are building. We have to do something about that, or we're going to be run by machines, which is the other way the human race is thought to end, mm. that the machines will simply take over from us when they get a little bit smarter than they are now. They'll decide they don't like us and get rid of us. 
we'll be like animals in the zoo they kept around to remember yeah did, i mean uh, did you hear about that russian chess robot that uh, was competing with uh, the seven-year-old chess i don't know if he's a prodigy but he was a chess champion and apparently the kid made a really fast move and the robot just leaned over and broke his finger. <laughs> I heard that, yeah. <laughs> That's just what we're headed to. Yeah, with, <laughs> not chess, but <laughs> yeah. the real game of chess. <laughs> right. Oof. It's very scary. So people but, like you can do something about this. You know, so what we have to do, this is what I'm doing, is telling people about this. Yeah. You know, people aren't hearing about it. You know, I did a TED talk a few years ago and 4 million people had seen it until yeah. about six months ago. Yeah. And it, it was like, I've been studying nuclear wars for 35 years and you should be worried. And yeah. it was getting comments like, why are you studying this for 35 years? We haven't been in any nuclear wars. What are you doing with your time? Uh, you know, and it was derogatory kind of comments. Of but course, now, that's YouTube, eight right? Million, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, now 8 million people have seen it. So twice as many people saw it in the last few months. Mm -hmm. And the comments are things like, I've been thinking about nuclear weapons for 30 minutes and I am worried. Um, yeah. you know, so that's what we have to do. This is what happened in the 1980s. It was a people around the world said, I've had enough of this. Yeah. You know, I'm tired of this going on. And the United Nations, for example, disbanded nuclear weapons. So the countries of the world and the General Assembly voted to ban nuclear weapons, just like landmines and uh, poison gases and chemical yeah. weapons are banned. And so their nuclear weapons are actually forbidden. You're forbidden to have them. You're forbidden to train anybody else how to make one. You know, and, but you know, people have, are blind to this problem. You know, it seemed yeah. like peace broke out, you know, and that all the world's problems were solved. We could all be friends. And instead of wasting our, you know, you can see this around the world, countries that are fighting and having civil wars. And I mean, they have no future. They're not, they're not prosperous. It's the countries that are democracies and like India and, uh, in Pakistan and the United States and uh, Europe, you know, those countries are not fighting and they're very prosperous. Mm. And you can, it's terrifying to look at Russia. You know, if you look at North Korea, that's a failed state. Yeah. There's a dictatorship there. The people are starving to support one family in riches. Yeah. And instead of investing in their people, they're investing in their military and in maintaining their power. Russia is headed the same way. It's obviously not a failed state, but it's a failing state mm. half of its half of its economy comes from fossil fuels we can't mm. have fossil fuels in coming decades because of the greenhouse effect the russian economy is aimed in the wrong direction they're not developing their economy on things that will sustain them they're yeah. investing their money in missiles and bombs and invading their neighbors you know there's nothing to be gained by invading your neighbors and having missiles and bombs you know, so we have to turn Russia around and, you know, have them develop their economy in peaceful ways. You know, they have a rich society there with a wonderful history and, yeah. you know, spectacular achievements in the past. You know, there's no reason they can't That's have spectacular, spectacular achievements people in the as well. Yeah. 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 But they're not going to do that by invading their neighbors and making more bombs. You know, that's the mm. wrong direction. And it's not like the United States is innocent about this either, you know. Yeah. Right? have our own problems and we're building bombs too and we need to stop it well i hope that you know people listen to sense and people to listen to people like you uh, and thank you so much you know i think we can take take it at this point to sort of um you know 
let the cockroaches celebrate. <laughs> right. I have a few cockroaches around here. I'm sure they're. Yeah, they I can hear them <laughs> with their vuvuzelas. <laughs> yeah. But uh, now, thank you so much for uh, talking to me today. And I think you know, I, I, on behalf of everyone listening, I think for the great work you've done and dedicated your life to. Uh, thank you so much, Brian Toon, for being here. Yeah, and thank you for inviting me to speak to you. And good luck with your program. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, please do check out the other episodes on YouTube or wherever you get your podcast. And I would much appreciate it if you could like the video, share it with people who you think might enjoy it. And of course, do subscribe to the channel because it will help me and the podcast grow and reach more people just like you. So thanks again. Appreciate it.